The Talking to Ourselves podcast is brought to you by The One Club, the world's leading nonprofit organization recognizing creative excellence in advertising and design. Hey, I'm Omid Farhang, CCO at Momentum, and today I'm speaking with Susan Cradle, global CCO of FCB, where she took the helm in 2015. Before that, Susan spent over two decades at BBDO, where she rose from bathroom break girl, which you'll hear her explain, to ECD. She worked on some of the biggest brands in the world, including FedEx, Gillette, Pepsi, Visa, and perhaps her claim to fame, reinventing the iconic M&M's characters we all know and love today. In 2009, Susan joined Leo Burnett, where she became one of the first ever female CCOs of a large-scale agency. She spearheaded a creative renaissance at Leo, leading to such memorable work as the Allstate Mayhem campaign. She's been one of Advertising Age's 100 Most Influential Women and one of Business Insider's Most Creative Women in Advertising. I'd never met Susan before this conversation, and I walked away from it looking at my career in a different way and feeling inspired in a different way. Maybe you'll feel it too. This is Susan Cradle and I talking to ourselves. Um, You spent 24 years at BBDO. Can you just tell us a little bit about your first job at BBDO? Yeah, I I came to New York with $400 um, and no plane ticket back home. So I was kind of stuck on purpose. And I thought I wanted to do advertising, but I didn't really understand what it was. I just knew it was a business that embrace creativity, and that was interesting to me. And someone said, just look at the trade magazines to get start to understand what the business is. And the week that I got here in 1985, BBDO was on all the covers of the trade magazines. And so I thought, well, they must be really good, so I'll go there. I'm, I'm very simple in how I get to decision-making. Logic, the logic seems <laughs> yeah, sound to yeah. me. And so I went in, and they this was back before computers, and so they tight people that could type were very valued and there were lots of jobs for people that could type. I couldn't type. Um, And so they said I didn't have any real skill set that they could use except maybe giving the receptionist their cigarette, coffee, and bathroom breaks. I was like, all right, I guess I could do that. And um, I asked them how much it paid, and they said $11,500 a year. I said, is that a lot of money? They said, absolutely, it's fine. It's not. (laughs) So I had to. I took a a part time job. I, I took a night job as a coat check girl in a high end restaurant, and I taught dance classes um, for for some gyms. And doing all three of those things, we we were able to eat at least. Um, yeah, and I just started watching the agency uh, from that. It was nice because I was always moving around, giving all the receptionists their breaks, so nobody could figure out who I was. So I didn't get like. There was no position that was like, oh, you're the receptionist. And I kind of turned BBDO into my university and met with all the heads of departments and interviewed them and you know asked them what they did, why did they like it. And I loved every department. I thought, I thought, I thought they all seemed amazing. But it became very clear at BBDO that the creative department was what everybody else pushed into, You know that that was, that was the jewel. And so I started working my way into how I could become a creative. It speaks to your mentality, though. It, you must get a chuckle in every agency you've worked at when you meet um, a young person who says that they've maybe they're maybe in a position that where they've hit a ceiling, <laughs> and you kind of go like, you know, the person who has the job that you want sits twenty feet from here, and have you tried to have one conversation with them? Like, it's sort yeah. of amazing what's possible when you look at the surroundings around you a little bit differently in terms of what's available to you. Yeah, well, I was fascinated at BBDO. I don't think I ever really asked for, like, can I be a creative director or whatever. I just started doing it. Right. Um, And I also, I guess, I realized where I was not as strong, and I would look around the department and find people that usually were slightly younger that weren't getting, they weren't getting the attention that I thought they deserved. And if I had an assignment that I thought they could write better than I could, or I, I would just say, you want it. Do you do you want it? And I'll try to sell it and support it. I didn't know that was what a creative director was supposed to do. I just knew I didn't want to screw up, and I didn't have the chops to do certain things as well as I thought somebody else would. And that's sort of how creative directing happened to me, is, is actually filling in for my weaknesses. <laughs> Did you start working on briefs before you were officially hired, um, even as a copywriter or art director? Yeah, when I, I worked, I've worked my way up from 
receptionist break girl to a secretary. Um, on, I had to learn to type, but that's what I did while I was the res- giving the receptionist their breaks. And so I got, I could be a secretary because I could type enough words flawlessly. And I found a desk that was all art directors instead of writers. And I thought, well, if they're all art directors, maybe if I volunteered to write on some things, that might work. And it was an okay plan. It wasn't a great plan. But the other one was that the creative director I was working for, I she, I talked to her about my ambitions, and she said, look, why don't I give you all the briefs that we're working on, and you can think about them, and then when people are showing work, you can come in and listen and kind of start to put the you know, two together. I mean, how generous is that of yeah. someone to let you do that? And eventually, I ended up not being a secretary because I was you know, cr- writing for, for all the art directors, and they were like, I think she needs to have a different job. Yeah, so often in agencies... I think there's a misconception that promotions happen with an ice cream cake. I think it's really more what you said. It's like you just start coming up with ideas and then six months or a year goes by and then they call you the thing that you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. choice. I always laugh when it's very formal. No, you can make this organic. You can start reading the tea leaves and seeing where there's a weakness or a hole. Or, um, In fact, the the first real job I got uh, was some junior creatives were like, there's an opening in a group for a junior, and you should put your book up there. And I was like, no, it's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible. And they're like, you should just do it, you know. And I, I finally got up the courage and thought, what do I have to lose? And then my creative director changed. She left, and a new one came in, and I told her about the arrangement of me trying to become a writer. And she came back and said, we're not going to promote any secretaries because then every secretary will want to be promoted. What a great reason. But what was great... <laughs> At the time, I was like, "I, that is, you're horrible. Right. But without her, I wouldn't have gotten the courage to go put my book up in that other group's um, pile of portfolios. And I was so angry. I was like, well, screw it. I'm putting it up there. And I ran into the, the cre- creative director of the group. And he had told me once, you know, if he could ever do anything, let me know. And I ran into him in the morning. And I said, you know, Charlie, you told me if I could ever do anything for you, um, you would. And I said, I think I'm ready to cash in that favor. My portfolio is up with all those other junior portfolios that you're looking at. And I said, it's not good. I said, but I will work so hard. I will do so much. I will try my best. You know, I will stay here longer. And um, I said, but I really, I just need a chance. And I came back from lunch that day and there was just a little note on my desk that said, you're hired, kid. <laughs> And I worked for him for 24 years. You know what's amazing about that story is I think as young creatives hear that story, it's easy to believe that you're describing a different industry or a different world, a a, a bygone time. And do you feel like every time is designed to make you feel like, you know, creating opportunity for yourself, forcing your foot into the door, uh, forging relationships with people who, you know, the rest of the company or maybe telling you you're not supposed to be talking to like does you know does that ever does that technique ever go out of style or does is that opportunity just as just as um available to a young create a young person in an agency now as it was in 1985 i think the difference between 1985 and today is that there were no um portfolio schools for writers Mm -hmm. so there were schools for art directors to learn kerning and letting and you know skill sets But there was no real school for writers, so I don't think you were coming in competing with that level of, of education in, in the business. So I do think that's different. Um, however, I, I have to say that, you know, I always said when I got that, you know, when I looked at my career, I always said I was going to pay it forward to at least one of my assistants. And so... Um, Peter Alsante, who works at BBDO, he was my assistant. And he demonstrated that he had a creative vision and whatever. And I was like, you know what? Let's take a chance. Let's see what you do. And I did the same thing for him that was done for me. And I think we're missing out on interesting people if we don't give more opportunities for people who don't go through portfolio schools to enter the business. And I think we're going to see more of that. And it's not that portfolio level training and talent is going to go away. But I think I'm hearing from a lot of people, I want to find that, you know, freak that shouldn't have, I mean, I shouldn't have done this. Um, And if I'd known, if I had had to invest in a 
with extra schooling, I would have never done it. Um, so yeah, I, and also I think we're all emotional. And when you see someone putting their heart and soul into something and trying hard and, and they do have to have talent, even if it's not perfect at that level, entry level, we're willing to take chances. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, I think likability of a human being goes a long way. So I tell a lot of young people that can't afford portfolio schools, I'm like, find the, find the agency or the creative director that you admire and love and just get in there and hustle. (laughs) Just make sure people know you're here. It's funny. Like as an industry, we, we want talent, unlike talent we've seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we find talent the same way. It's like you want a director, <laughs> and we want to make a car commercial unlike any that's ever existed before. Well, I looked at some reels. I mean, they have no cars on mm-hmm. their reels. So it's like, well, don't you think that gives you maybe the best chance to create something that's exactly. never been done before? But I was wondering how you would answer that question uh, to be encouraging without having 10 receptionists and project managers standing outside <laughs> your office tomorrow. And I think you did it with a plum. So congratulations. Thank you. I reached out to our mutual friend, Eric Silver. Okay. And I said, Eric, give me a question to ask Susan. Oh, Lord. He proposed the following. Ask her what made BBDO a family and why it was such a special place to work. It feels like a bit of a shrug off question to me, but I'm, I'm asking <laughs> it to you anyway. Well, I think one of one of the things that made BBDO a family for me is I started there at the embryonic stage of, right. of that next chapter in my life. So, you know, I knew everybody and I knew all, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, and I also think that, you know, if you look at BBDO, there's longevity in the people that work there. Right. There's There are a lot of almost entire careers made and even like David Lubars is the is the new regime and how long's he been there now? Yeah. Fifteen years maybe? Maybe more? I can't remember when he came in. But it's it's a while. Right. And I think that longevity and a commitment to to a, a a level of creativity and also serving if you look at the work that BBDO does, most of it is long, long term campaigns or, or points of view for the brand um, that have gotten into the culture of our world. And um, I think when you're not doing one-offs all the time and you're actually committing to long, long-term ideas and long-term brand building, I, I think it does make you feel like you're a part of something pretty big. Yeah. Um, and I see it in other agencies that are younger that are doing that same thing of building brands. And when you build brands, it requires people all caring, not just for a project, but for a vision. And I think that in that vision, there is a familial, something happens. Well, the industry is only getting more transient. It makes that 24 years in one place all the more rare and <laughs> impressive. To that end, do you find yourself giving advice to creatives as it relates to weathering the storm when an agency hits a rough patch that feels permanent but may only be a few months or a few years? Well, it's funny. I was talking to a woman, um, Luciana Connie, who uh, amazing lady, and she was the CCO um, at Leo in Lisbon when I was at Leo Burnett. And she was having a – and she just told me this a couple of months ago. I didn't realize it. Um, and she's now the CCO of Lapis, which is the Hispanic agency for Leo Burnett. But we were together in Brazil, and she said, you know, you gave me a piece of advice that changed, you know, the trajectory of my career. And I said, what, what was it? <laughs> and she said she was going through a rough patch in Lisbon and wanted to leave. And I said, how long have you been there? And she said, two and a half years. And I said, you haven't done anything. I said, two and a half years on a resume to me, unless you're 24 says you left when it got hard and everybody can leave when it gets hard. I said, stick it out, stick it out and prove that you can get through the rough patch. You can get hard and do some things you're proud of. And I think she stayed for five years and all of a sudden her credibility in the industry and especially in Leo, you know, I think went up versus if she had done two and a half years, it gotten hard and she went somewhere else. She'd started over two and a half years. That little, that, that plan doesn't work out real well because I know when I look at anybody's you know, VC, if I see them jumping around and they can't last, I, for me, it's five. Yeah. If you can't, if you can't 
stay someplace for five years, something's wrong. You know, you don't have backbone. You're a sprinter. You should be a freelancer. Um, it takes three years to do anything that I think is impactful in this business, which is why I'm worried about the industry, because if we're all moving around every two and a half, three years, you're not building anything of substance. You really, there's no way. You're not building anything that's going to stick around. And so then when we have CMOs going, I don't know if I believe in brand anymore. Well, you know why you don't believe in brand anymore? Because there's no brand, you're not building any brand to believe in. Right. You know, it, it, it takes perseverance and passion and caring. And it's dangerous for our business. Yeah, it's, it, that's such a great point. Building brands ultimately comes down to a group of people on the client side and a group of people on the agency side. And it takes time for that trust to develop. And it's really difficult when just when that trust gets developed and one small step of progress gets made, you know, the person who was involved in making it is immediately thinking about how to leverage this one small success into their yeah. next thing. And by the way, you know, people should manage their careers however they want. But I'm sure you see it all the time. You see more and more resumes where it's like, oh, I did a, a year at Widen and then I did Eight months at BBH, and then I did uh, fifteen I I, minutes at. Yeah. I don't even look at them. I mean, they're done. I don't need that. I, I need. They're great freelancers out there. If that's your commitment right. to culture, we'll just go with freelance. Right. No, I want people that want to come in and build things and understand that that's going to be hard. But um, the outcome of it is, you know, like when um, my partner at the time, Steve Rudder, and I were working on M and M's, we couldn't have built what we built. It took us probably six years. Five years to get to the store, you know, um, and we built things that what is so great is neither one of us work on the business and we haven't worked on the business in a while. And it's it's still what we built, you know, and it's still growing and it's still strong and it's not a frivolous, small idea. It's a big global, you know, in the world idea. Yeah. And I've been telling people at FCB that, you know, it's like the reason we're going to set some rules about creativity is I want every person in this business to experience how fulfilling that is to not just do, you know, what I call, you know, fast food creative, but to actually do something substantial that sticks around and feeds the next generation, you know, economically and creatively. Yeah, you will get into it. But, you know, you've been to two agencies that um, filling big leadership roles. And when the going gets tough at big agencies, all of a sudden, I think ideas start to get devalued and get used yeah. as cannon fodder. I would think a big part of the job is just bringing a sense of value back to ideas. Yeah. it's Look, I, know, I, I absolutely believe that if you take your client a long-term platform point of view in the world um, that's clear and timeless, and then you solve business problems and take advantage of brand opportunities through that platform, I think you go quickly from feeling like a vendor to a partner. And, you know, it takes discipline. Like I, I see a lot of bad behavior. We're all chasing, like we want to win an award and we'll sacrifice the brand to do something creative for us. And I think that causes the relationship to fall apart and it doesn't, it's not, it's not good for anybody in the long term. And uh, I, that's what I hope we get back to. And, and it, not everybody's going to need that, but the kind of work that I like to do is taking, taking a business, but that's the other thing is I think we use the word business and brand interchangeably. They're not right. business. Business is a product or a service. It's a thing. And the brand is the emotional value that you connect with it. And a lot of people use the word brand, meaning their product or their service or their business. It's like, no, that's not a brand. Yeah. That's that's what you do. When you call the brand a business, <laughs> it really devalues the business. Yeah. You yeah. Know, it makes it seem like, well, it's a it's it almost turns the word brand into like the facade. Right. You know. After twenty four years, how emotional is the last day? Horrible. Yeah. But you know, it's interesting. It was twenty four years and I always had a room to grow. You know, yeah. I was like, I'll do this, I'll do this. And then what happened was I kind of got to a place, and that's the great thing about a big agency, is that there's tons, like if you see that creative director over there that's doing amazing things, you just work your way, like I want to work for you now. Right. you know. So I, I just meandered all over that building for 20 years. And I would say when I left, it wasn't so much that I wanted to leave BBDO, it's I got this call to go be the CCO at Leo. Yeah. And it took me six months to say yes, in all honesty. Um, 
but at the time there were no female CCOs in America of any decent size agency. And I got calls from women saying, will you please take it so that we can show that a woman can hold this title. And that, that's, that's bizarre to me because that was 2009 and we were having those kind of, can a woman be a CCO in America? And the Leo job for women seemed like that was important at the time. And that had value. And I'm so glad I did it, not because i glad I left BBDO, but taking the job at Leo really helped me have a larger voice for, for diversity in advertising. I'm sure it helped you discover talents and skills and a, a whole version of yourself yeah. you know, that you, didn't, you just don't know exists when you're in your comfort zone, as awesome as yeah. a comfort zone can be. Yeah. Yeah. When, you got to, when you got to Leo, not that you would have admitted this out loud, even if it were true, but deep down, did you feel like my job is to bring as much of the BBDO way to Leo Burnett Chicago as possible? Um, yeah, I think you always bring what you know and love about a job to the next job. Um, I would have never taken the Leo job if Mark Tutzel hadn't, you know, I mean, obviously anybody who knows Mark knows how much he loves creativity, um, and how important it is to him. So to me, I've always looked at any job that I've even thought about is the culture, the DNA of that agency has to have started with creativity. I mean, Leo Burnett was a creative man. He wasn't a account person. So there's my gut was that creativity is in the soul of this company. So waking up creativity or helping that creativity come to light again won't be as hard as if I go to, and I'm not going to name agencies, but you can fill them in, agencies that were started where service and business and, 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 and clients, <clears throat> relationships were the lead and creative supported that. Um, that wouldn't be a good agency fit for me. Yeah. As a first-time CCO in a new agency and in a new environment, did you ever find yourself in this exalted new role um, trying to represent yourself as something that you weren't to be the person in the room with the answers or to be <laughs> the sort of like new magician? Did, like, did, you, did you have to struggle with that early on and find your way back to what makes you you? No, I still struggle with it. I mean, I, oh, I, was, having, relief. Okay, I cool. was having this conversation the other day, well, about like three or four months ago, and I, I said, you know, my problem is you get these letters in front of your name, and all of a sudden I think somebody thinks there's an advertising god that's giving you some more stuff in your head. Right. You know, I'm like, I got no more brains than what I started with. You know, I've got some experience, but, you know, I'm kind of still born with what I was born with. And I said, you know, I worry because I think that the bigger the title, you know, the more they think you're going to be right. And I said, I'm scared to death to tell people my opinion because none of us are going to be right all the time. That's insane. Um, and this person said, Susan, they didn't hire you because they think you're going to be right all the time. In fact, they know that most people are going to make a lot of wrong calls. They just think you're going to make more right calls more often than the other person. And I thought, well, that's, kind of, that's an interesting way to think about it, sort of like baseball. You're not going to hit a home run every time, but we believe the odds of you hitting a home run are better than that other person. And I think that helps when you're in this leadership position. I'm also very much... I listen, you know, I don't have, I mean, I, I wish I was blessed with that. I'm amazing and I know all the answers and listen to me. I'm, I'm always like, I have this feeling it could be wrong. It could be right. And, and that's a hard thing for me because, you know, you do want leaders that come in and feel like they know exactly what you need to do. And I remember David Lubar telling me one time, we were trying to figure out a print layout thing for a client, and I didn't know. I mean, we were just all over the place, and we came in one Sunday afternoon, and we put a bunch of stuff out, and he goes, what do you think? I'm like, well, I'm kind of leaning that way. He goes, I like it too. Let's make a decision. Let's just do that. And he goes, well, isn't it great just to make a decision? And I think sometimes as leaders, it's just we're just meant to make a decision. Yeah. Whether it's right or wrong, somebody in the room, make a decision, and let's move on and figure out was it right, was it wrong, or was it sort of right? You know. Yeah, sometimes it should be a struggle and we should be redlining, but <laughs> sometimes it's okay for the answer to be just elegantly easy. Yeah, I also find that, that um, 
Like there are times, I think a lot of the times, a lot of what we do doesn't make a difference. You know, we fight over casting, or we fight over typography, or we, you know, argue over, oh my gosh, this is going to ruin this if we don't do this music versus this music. A lot of those things I think are like, you know, it makes, I don't think it's going to, it's your opinion over my opinion. And I've learned to back off. But I have, I do have, um, every once in a while, I have, I'm physically wired that there, there are moments where I just get that, you know, your hair raises on your arms or you get this sort of tingly feeling. And then there are times when I want to throw up. And if I feel like I'm going to throw up or I feel like I, <laughs> I have a tingly feeling, then I will speak up and say, you know, I have a very strong opinion about this. And then the other times I'm like, you know, I can tell you for me, it's not my favorite, but I'm not having a physical huge positive or huge negative. And that's when there are, we pay a lot of people in our organization with, for me, CCO titles, ECD titles, CD titles, that I have to respect their, I want them to know I respect their opinion. Um, And I'm rightly or wrongly, most often I'll give my, I'll give my point of view. And if it's not super strong one way or the other, but just sit in the middle of the road, I'm like, this is my point of view. You can take it for what it's worth. It's not a dictate, you yeah. know, measure it, you're, you know, and, and make your decision. A lot of creative directors struggle when they get promoted to ECD or CCO because they feel like their greatest weapon is their personal taste. But mm-hmm. you create a bottleneck when you try to apply your personal taste to every piece of work, you know, in a, especially in a global job. And it's interesting because you, you started by saying that when you first became a writer, you were basically walking around trying to be additive to the people at BBDO saying like, do you have something that you like that I can help you sell? So it, it came naturally to yeah. you to relinquish control and, and share, yeah. you know, share the creative process with yeah. people. Um, so first Leo Burnett and, and then FCB, it, it relates to your arrival at both of those companies. Um, I'm just curious, what are some of your thoughts on diplomatically imposing your way of doing things versus being open to a company with its own culture and its own way of doing things that might be different than yours, but um, that might be able to sort of merge with what you know to be the way, the right way to do things. So with Leo, I think, um, actually Leo and FCB, I think I went in, you know, very slowly and respectfully, I, th- I hope people would find, where I looked at what they were doing and where were their strengths, you know, what, what had worked for them. So, Leo, you know, where were, what were your highlights? Where were you amazing? You know, what, what's strong about this? Um, and then, like, so Leo Burnett, my first week, instead of meeting with the creatives, because I felt like there was some weird politics going on and sort of camps where, you know, it was different disciplines separated from each other. So creative stuck together, account people stuck together. And I don't know, I just, I thought maybe it's smarter. I've, I've always believed that the best creative agencies, everybody believes that the creati- that creative is the product and it's the most important thing the agency does versus good service or good relationships. And so the first thing I did was meet with all the head account people one-on-one and basically told them if we were going to get the creative to the next level, it was up to them. And they were like, what, 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 what are you talking about? Yeah. I said, because if you don't want to make a great creative product, we can stop right now because you, it's going to be about how your relationship, how you manage your financials, you know, um, how you protect the creative, how you make sure you can sell in the creative, you know, that you, you're tight with your creative partner and you guys respect each other. And if that's not happening, we don't, we might as well just go home and go to bed because it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. We need a different plan. And um, with FCB, you know, Carter Murray had come in already and declared we we're going to get FCB back to the creative shop it once was. Um And he took the name Draft off the door, you know, as a, there was always a question of, well, are you more Draft, are you more FCB, which one has the, and he's, I think he was very declarative. It's like, we're going to go back to, we are, we are after, you know, we're going to become a creative shop. And then what I did is they had done a lot of work the first, 
three years before I got there. So I just went and read all the like value systems. And when I went around to some of the offices around the world, I looked at what like what mantras and pieces they had put on their walls. Was there any connective tissue? Were things starting to bubble up that look consistent across the agencies? And I found a few. I, the problem with FCB is I think that they had too many. And if you have too much culture, right? you know, point of view and culture, it, nobody can remember any of it. And so then it's devalued. Right. So basically, I just did what, you know, great designers do, I think, is just distill it all down to a few things that people could remember and buy into. And then, thankfully, instead of coming out with like, ta-da, I, this is what we're going to do, I took six months once we had an idea of some organizing language and goals, um, I went to most of the, you know, the big stakeholders creatively and, you know, um, CEOs and CCOs and CSOs and sort of said, this is my idea or this is an idea I have. It's coming from things I've, I'm reading in the culture already, but declaring and how do you feel about this? Do you think it's going to help? Do you think it's going to hurt? And by the time we unveiled it, everybody had not only supported it, but had actually added some nice things that made it even stronger. So I think that that was, I mean, we'll see. It's, 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 it's theory until it starts paying out. But we're seeing it on some of, you know, like the new Clorox, Clorox work we did came out of that kind of commitment to a, a way, the kind of creative we want to bring to clients and, and how we want to do it. So we'll, we'll see if the, the practice pays off. It's so easy for agencies to write the new vision statement and manifesto and then <laughs> mm. two years go by and they go, well, we're not the best agency in the world. I guess it's not worth it working. Let's try it again. And all of a sudden, 10 years go by and you have sort of five different sets of collections of words that, you know. Which is kind of like when we get frustrated with our clients because they do it all the time. Right. You know, you see brand businesses, you know, changing out their brand point of view and then we don't do it on ourselves. I'm like, come on, you know, what are we going to, you know. We, you can always evolve it, but I think you've got to have – you know, we, we need to do for ourselves what we want to do for our clients. Have you found in either of the agencies where you took over the CCO role, I know the FCB role mm-hmm. is global, that um, people would sort of tell you like, well, this person is a superstar and this person is a malcontent. Mm-hmm. And the assessment was actually the opposite. And you kind of look at someone and go, I actually think this person might be a malcontent because... Um, they're incredibly talented and feel like they're not being like, it's part of the job to go and give people a clean slate. I, I think so. Um, I actually found that the most creative were the malcontents and, Me too. and yeah. they, well, they were saying, but I don't like that either because I, I, I'm like, come on. Um, do we, do we have to create that kind of culture to do great creative? Right. What I did find is that there were a lot of people that people had dismissed as average creatives and written them off. And especially with a, like a difficult client, I'm more likely to say that person has the temperament to deal with a very hard piece of business. But if we put young, talented creatives underneath them, we might get something great. And half of it was convincing the average creative director to believe they had the right to hire great talent. They, they, I think there's a fallacy, which is I should probably only hire talent that's not as good as me, you know, or that I could teach. Right. And I'm like, no, hire brilliant people, give them an opportunity, listen really hard to them, you know, teach them basically on your experience of like how to get great work through, you know, how to protect their work. And they're like, but they'll leave. I'm like, so... If you have two or three years of a great creative underneath you... I'd take that any time. And that's that's sort of, I think, what I did at BBDO is that, you know, I tease like Jerry Graff, you know. It's like he worked for – I don't even know if he really officially worked for me, but he definitely worked on things that I needed help on. Let's go on. with he worked for you. Let's yeah, why not? He, he, he calls me boss. So I'm like, But I don't think it was ever official, but he was one of those that I just saw him underutilized, and I'm like, I'll give you stuff. And he was great, you know, and um, – you know, I would take him for for a day uh, versus average for a lifetime. Yeah. Isn't, the, isn't the long view really like the idea is not to go from having problems to having no problems. There's a whole <laughs> series of steps in between where you can upgrade your problems. Yes. So if our problem is 
not the right talent. What if we upgraded our problem to better talent that doesn't stick around long enough? Exactly. And yeah. I, I'm a, a huge proponent of that. It's, it's frightening. I'd rather him be younger. I don't like having great talent in senior positions come in and come out. Right. Um, I think that's da- that that's hard on a culture. But yeah, the, the young, you know, the people that are just working on project briefs, um, oof, yeah, get, get them for as long as you can have them and wish them well and say thanks on the way out, you yeah. know, because there's another batch coming, there's more coming. Yeah. And two may leave after two years, and the third one may stay for 15 years. Right. You've know, you got to give them an opportunity to yeah. do that. Yeah, I, I think that fear of talent leaving is something we all wrestle with. And the more I watch people leave and the agency doesn't fall apart, even like brilliant ones that are holding down a part of the business, it's like you will survive right. most of the time. No, sometimes it hurts, but... Right. You talked about getting more getting it right more often than you get it wrong. And that's mm-hmm. a huge part of the job, I assume. And um, and then I wonder if the other part is with someone of your resume and your pedigree to be able to walk into a room where something horrible has just happened. You know, all the work is dead. You know, they hate us. We're going to lose the account tomorrow. And just reassuring people that right now at BBDO and at Droga and at Wyden and at RGA, pretty much the same group of people <laughs> have pretty much the same sick to their feeling stomach as you guys do. And there's, I don't know, there's something reassuring about that. Do you think that's, is that an accurate statement? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean, I, I would love to say, oh, I got this. I mean, the other day I didn't, I literally did not sleep all night long because I had a conversation with some creatives where I just was not happy with the level of the work. And they had a meeting in 24 hours, and I said, well, you know, and you never know. I mean, like, I I didn't sleep because I was like, I don't know if I did the right thing or not. And I don't think I did because they didn't do anything different, so it didn't matter. And they they had a great meeting, by the way. Um, But, but, you know, I, there was this great story about, um, there was a famous line for Pepsi, uh, the choice of a new generation. Sure. And, you know, it changed that company's trajectory and, you know, made them equal to Coca-Cola through that campaign. But the story goes, and I heard it from the people that wrote it, so I think it's probably true, but they couldn't find a, a tagline. And they were driving around the parking lot at Pepsi going, it's got, where do we, how are we going to end this stuff? And 15 minutes before they were supposed to walk in, they wrote The Choice of a New Generation which has always been a lesson to me, a terrible lesson, which is you don't stop thinking about what possibly might be the creative solution until, you know, I mean, at BBDO, we used to call it bring it back and do it over. It'd be on the air and we'd bring it back and do it over. You know, we just were relentless at like, I think it'd be better, I think it'd be better, I think it'd be better. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I didn't sleep because I was like, they're, they're getting ready to go into a very, very important meeting. It's a, it was a jump ball, you know, with another agency. Yeah. And... Instead of me just, you know, I thought, what should I have done? Should I have just lied and said, this is great, this is great, this is great, and this is great. You know, go get them. And I can't. And so I said, you know, this feels derivative. I've seen this before. I think this is complicated. You know, I'm confused. Why do you all think this work is where it should be? And they were upset. I was upset. They didn't have any time to change it. They did have a great meeting. I still feel the way I feel about what they showed. And quite frankly, I think some of the work that they showed will be populist and people will love it. You know, and I'm always looking at it, you know, what's right for the brand, what's right for the business, and what's right for our reputation. And those are three, they're hard, you know, to get all three of them right. Um, So, yeah, I don't, um, I think that that one of the ways that I deal with that kind of stuff of we're going to lose, we're going to lose, we're going to lose, it's like if we work as hard as we can, and we tried as hard as we could. If the business walks out, you got to be okay with it. And I like to think about any business, but in ours particular, is like instead of thinking about we're in a business of scarcity, if we think about we're in a business of abundance, there's a reassurance that you'll lose one, but something else will come in. And same with talent. Yes, you're going to lose some talent. But there's an abundance. I know everybody's, no, there's not, no, there's not. There's, we may not know where to find them and we may not know their names, but yeah, the, the kind of names that we know might feel limit, 
limited, but I do think there's potential to look at everything as limitless. And think as a leader, more importantly, and I, I tell people this publicly, that probably at the first part of your career, it might benefit you to believe in the business of scare, you know, that you're in a culture of scarcity and kind of live on survival skills. But I think as a leader, you have to switch to a culture of abundance and and live on generosity and 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 lead on generosity, because I think the leaders that are, remain in a scarcity survival mode, you turn you basically start building a culture of fear, and it works. But I don't think I want to be the kind of person that I look back. At, you know what I did and said I just I, I I made people afraid and so they tried harder yeah Ugh, that's not a great legacy no well to that point as you talk about legacy and management style and mm-hmm. um, the daily interactions that add up to the way that the people whose lives you touch sort of assess their experience working with and for you mm-hmm. um, what's one part of management that if I asked you about it 10 years ago, you would have said like, blah, that part of the job seems horrible. And you're sort of surprised to find that it either comes naturally to you or, or that you just enjoy it more than you realized you would have. It's almost unrelated to the creative process. Yeah. Um, gosh, I, it's funny because I've, I've really enjoyed, I started doing what I enjoy pretty early on. So, I think that the one thing that I've actually enjoyed, which is weird, is I never wanted to worry about the business of the agency, like, you know, how you run it financially. And I'm fascinated by it now. I'm not, I am not. don't know enough about it, but I mean, I have to say that just in the last couple of years, you know, looking at the health of a business and the margins and, you know, having a point of view about, you know, profit versus margin and is that the right way to judge a business or what are red flags on the financials that tell you that you're doing something wrong? I'm fascinated by the numbers. So that's, that's, that's one that's completely shocked me. Yeah. And early in your career, you're really, a lot of creatives are protected from that because it's totally, no, I didn't want to hear anything. I was like, y'all solve that. I'm, I'm just here making stuff, you know? Well, Uh, it it just, when you're in your twenties and in your thirties and your job is to come up when you're trying to trick people in their 20s and 30s into coming up with solutions for Fortune 500 companies, <laughs> it's really helpful to compartmentalize like the financial pressures and strains that they're up against and just make make the task seem fun and consistent with the type of problem that they might enjoy to solve. Right, right. Um, you said something in an interview that threw me back in my chair. Um, the question was, how do you maintain a work-life balance? And you said... Um, I'm writing my response on a Sunday afternoon. The sun is shining and I want to take a walk in Riverside Park. But as I sit typing and reflecting on these questions, I realize that my work is my life. When I separate them, I resent the work. When I adjust my thinking and realize that this work fulfills me, being asked to answer questions about work on a day off isn't a frustration, but a privilege. (laughs) So is... Our I wonder if I pre- hired someone to write that. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Your, your official speechwriter? <laughs> yeah, I didn't write that. No. <laughs> I mean, I, in light of that, I wonder if you could talk, because I found that so inspiring. Like, our, our happiness and fulfillment are two different things. Sometimes you can be really fulfilled, and part of fulfillment uh, brings with it moments of pain or moments of, you know, intellectual or emotional investment that aren't as fun as walking in the park. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about sort of your journey to understand what fulfillment meant to you. Well, I like right now I've been living out of a suitcase for I think at least 6 months. Like I don't I haven't slept in a, the same bed 5 days in a row. I can't remember. Sounds so fulfilling. I know. Yeah. But I could I could dwell on that, which I obviously am now because I'm really tired <laughs> of it. <laughs> I'm like I I thought I was I thought I had to I thought December it, I was done and then it just great things happened, but it's requiring a little bit more suitcase um love. Uh but when I get like that, I have to take a moment and pause and think, but what are all the great things that have come to you because of this job? You know, and what's great is, you know, the people I am with, I enjoy. You know, I don't go to work and go, oh, God, I've got to hang with those people. I actually, if I wasn't working with them, I would choose them as friends. So that's the first thing that 
I think too often we if we if we separate work and time off, we're going to be frustrated and go, I don't have any time off. Versus like tonight, I'm leaving here to go have dinner with my number two, Fred Levron and the CCO of Chicago, Liz Taylor. And I could go, I can't believe I have to go to dinner with work people. I, it's actually the opposite. I'm like, I'm so thrilled they're in town. I can't believe I get the chance to go and hang out with them. And if you don't feel that way, I think you've got to think about getting a job that you're not emotionally connected to. I'm just fortunate that this career, this industry, and this job I'm emotionally connected to. So it is my life. Yeah. Um, and I don't have children. So, you know, I think the world is a, a little different for, for me. Um, but I think I would find a way for those children, if I did have them, to realize that mom doesn't have work and then she has you. I would bring them into the work, you know? It's like let the, let the work world know who they are. Let them understand that they're a part of something. Um, it sparks kind of a weird question for me, but between uh, Leo and FCB, you took – you had a six-month period. Mm-hmm. I, tell me a little bit about how that six months is spent. Is it is it fully recharging, or is there a moment where you click and it turns into sort of like a training sequence from a Rocky movie, where you're, you know, you're, was, you're you're building up to the big moment of the new job? It was the most important six months because I'd never taken more than two weeks off in my life. I mean, wow. since college, so I'd never had more than two weeks over thirty years, um, and I was so excited. I was so lost. I hated it. Um, I think if I had been like just done, uh, it might be different. But all it was was trying to get an apartment sold in Chicago, a a place bought in New York, moving our lives. And by the way, you're doing it with no support from, you know, no, no, like, Tact, not much support from a company. Like now I just call, you know, I, I'm holding up my phone, but I just like type in something, go, can somebody make this happen? And I was like, I was my personal assistant. I was everything. And um, it was hard. It was really hard. And my husband lost his father during that time. And so the good news is it was not like, I wish I could have those six months. I wish I could go back to that life where I've met a few people that are like, I don't ever want to go back. I was FCB's lucky. I was like, what can I please start anytime? And I, and that's, I think that's when I realized that this industry has given me so, so much, you know? Well, that's, what's really funny about the way you just described that period is you seem to know how to look at any work related situation and find your gratitude and mm-hmm. your fulfillment in it. And in the six months that you didn't have work, no one was emailing you and no one needed you. <laughs> like you don't feel obligated they to, were to spin li- that positively. Well, you know? there was funny because they, they they were asking, like the industry was like, can you come talk here? Can you come yeah. he- be here? But I was like, okay, but I have to make my plane reservations. I have to make my to- hotel reservations. Yeah. You know, I have to write my speech. I, ki- I kind of begged FCB. I was like, I know legally we're not supposed to do anything, but you've got to help me design my talks because I just, I can't. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was interesting. Um, I also noticed in the press that when you're inevitably asked about women in the workplace or women in advertising, you seem to be very careful to do it through the lens of speaking for yourself and not on behalf of all women. Yeah, is that is that a a fair observation? Oh yeah, yeah, because we're all very different, you know. And I've got super tough women, you know, that would never shed a tear ever. And then there's me who I cry at almost everything, unless I'm mad. I don't cry when I'm mad, but man, I cry. Like if you're nice to me, I cry. If I get emotional about something that's heartfelt, I cry. But the questions, (laughs) the questions predominantly tend to be worded in a way that, that are asking you. So like, you know, it's not there, but it's implicit. Like, Susan, on behalf of all women, Mm -hmm. you know, and it must be, you know, like, that's a that's a big burden to yeah. carry, right? On behalf of all white people. Yeah. You know, I'm like, really? I wouldn't answer that question. Yeah. Like, well, let me tell you what the white people feel. I don't know. Yeah, like, I, maybe. Um, yeah, I think we all come with different stories. I think that there are some commonalities for women, you know, that I can speak to of situations. And obviously right now in the environment we're in, I think it's sobering that um, I'm actually shocked at, at how much... I, I mean, I, I tell them, everybody thinks I'm not telling the truth with truth when they say, have you ever ha- run into any of this? And except for a few weird little things, I kind of have not. I've, I've not had 
too much that was damaging, you know, or I didn't shut it down and it was done. Um, but it's a, you know, it's, I, I'm glad I don't answer for all women because the kind of experiences women have had, I can't even begin to relate to. And I have no right to talk about how easy or difficult it is for an individual to be in the, in this industry. Right. Well, we talked about like misrepresenting yourself as something you're not to play a role in a company. And the Mm -hmm. same is true in the press or in the industry. You have to speak your truth. You can't attempt to represent all women or like become an advocate that's inconsistent with your experiences. Well, I think, I think it actually diminishes me as a human being. If I think that the reason I'm this way is because I'm a woman it's like, that's one of the reasons I'm also from Carolina. I'm a product of divorce. The Carolinas, excuse me. That's right. The Carolina, (laughs) the Carolinas. Um, but you know, there's so many things that go into making up who I am and I can, and, and then all of a sudden I think, well, this is, must be what everybody feels. And it's like, no, it's just what I feel. Yeah. And How has the global role been different besides being presumably on more planes? And, um, and are you still figuring out how to scale your impact because you can't be everywhere and you can't? Well, that was why I started with um, common language because one of the questions that people were saying is, what what is a global network? I mean, <laughs> is it just a bunch of agencies that put the same, you know, name on the front door. And so I think that's a great question. And I was like, if we're not speaking the same language around the world about what we believe about marketing and advertising, we're probably, that's probably about all we were. And, you know, we, we had some things like, you know, we want to be the best local agency, best local agencies in a global network. So there's a, there's a, a big push, um, that the local agencies are responsible for their, creative reputation and the local agencies that we want to be with are strong, you know, are strong creatives, um, or make a strong creative product. That's sort of the goal. But to me, that's, that's an outcome. You know, that's not, that's not, okay, that's declarative, but how? Yes. I want to be the best. Yeah. (laughs) That's (laughs) That's, great. Yeah. (laughs) I wanted to, too. Um, but I do think if we have some basic philosophies about, how we get to great work and the kind of work we do and the, and the clients start hearing it in India, in Brazil, you know, in London, you know, um, in America, you start to see this consistency of thought. And I think when you have consistency of thought, just in structure and how you do things, I think you start to all of a sudden go, oh my gosh, we we're all making the same kind and not, I don't mean creative execution, but the same kind of, of work that we believe in the long term is best for our clients. And I'm already seeing it happen. You know, we've only introduced some of the language. It's a year and a half. And I have clients actually writing me emails and like, you know, Susan, you know, thank you so much. Thank your team so much. I truly believe we hit a four this time and we are ready. I mean, it's so exciting. You're yeah. like, um, and what we did is we wrote we call it the four, five, six, but it's a one to six scale. And a lot of agencies have these kind of scales. Um, and I learned, I learned about it at Leo, but what I found is that the scales were, the scale was only the ones I saw were only written for creativity, but not creativity connected to ROI and why it's a, it's a good business decision. And so our four, five, six is judged based on how it impacts the business from our ROI point of view. And all of a sudden you show a client that where it's really just about your media investment goes down when your creativity goes up, possibly, um, because it's more impactful. And you start talking about creativity in that language and all of a sudden creativity comes back in the room with a really strong voice. Um, And that's helped a lot. Is that the most important part of the salesmanship of great ideas is, is understanding the business case or being able to make that business case and show the value of an idea besides that it, you know, it sparked something in your creative taste and gut instinct because CMOs, yes. while they're very happy to hear that, that's like not what oh, they're I think when t- I think when TV was a dominant media yeah. or the dominant media, I think you could just do your personal gut. I like it. And yeah. you put it on, everybody sees it and poof, you know, yeah, the business responds usually. Um, today with fragmented media, I think we have to go back to being much more disciplined marketers. And I actually study, you know, and look at what was going on in the forties and fifties when there was no dominant media. So you had to be much more disciplined as a marketer to understand your brand and commit to things. 
And I think it's fascinating that we're actually going back to the kind of marketer you needed to be, you know, 20s to the 50s. Um, and those were also when the, there were brands that were being born. Um, and so we act like this is a new day that's never happened before. It's like, no, it's it's not. It's go back and read history and you'll see the same sort of things that we need to be doing today we were doing yeah. um, for brands. Uh, a big part of the job is forging relationships with CMOs and um, <laughs> and earning trust over time. Mm-hmm. Um, do you start to see patterns in um, CMOs in terms of their their concerns and what excites them, or is it really different from one company to the next? It's interesting. I've had a I've had a weird time with CMOs, um, and I. And, and and most of it's good, but it's my it's my problem, which is when I walk into a room where somebody has power over me, which a CMO does, I'm not very good, and <laughs> I I don't feel good. I don't I don't know how to behave in the relationship. It's uncomfortable for me. I feel like if I'm authentic, um, and I say what I mean, it could get me in trouble. And then should I say what they want to hear? And I. I actually think it's a little bit of a product. I think this is something that comes from growing up in a divorced family in the 70s, is that my dad had power of me, and I love my dad very much, and he knows it, but I was so scared of him because he had all the control, and I was just there to, like, make sure I, you know, did I get my grades right? Did I say the right thing? Did I show up at the right time? Um, And it was really, it was, it's just terrible feeling. And so when I feel that feeling with the CMOs, I just want to go, I don't want a relationship. I don't want to be here. Um, so I have to work extra hard to try to put myself in a situation where we have an equal relationship and a valued relationship. And what I started doing is making sure that – this is, I think, interesting for creatives. And I, I don't know if this is a female thing, a Susan thing. I don't know if guys ever have this problem, but what I started realizing is that most of the time early on, I was meeting the CMOs when we had to sell them something. Right. And so what I did to correct that and and be less in a power play position or vulnerable position is that I would pick a time when everything was going well, you know, or we didn't have an agenda, and then go out to dinner you know, have a visit, right. go in with no nothing to sell, no nothing. How could they not be skeptical of the person who just showed up to be like the quote unquote closer? You know? Right, right. So I, so so that's what I try to do is is have more time when there's no agenda, right. but just trying to understand who they are, what they need, and who I am and what I do, and that's helped a lot with that. Yeah. But it will. It's been something I have to work at, and I also <laughs> you never believe this, but. And I think more and more people are like this than not. The more I talk about it is I'm inherently shy, which is weird because I have worked so hard to get over it. Um, but, you know, I, people laugh because, like, if I go into a party and I don't see anybody that I know, I go into the bathroom, I text people, and I'm like, when you get here, tell me where you are and I'll come out. I'm playing Candy Crush until I know some people in this room. <laughs> so, and, and I tell, you know, I actually think there are more people that are shy than not. I think that actually that is probably a more common characteristic than the person who just loves to walk into a a room and feels they're effervescent and they own it. Right. I just I think that's I think that's there are less people out there like that. You get nervous before client meetings. Um. Yeah. 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 yeah not not grossly like not you know but just sort of. It's somebody said, "What's what do you dislike the most about this business?" And it's like the subjectivity. It's like you don't know who's right and who's wrong until the work is actually made and done and out there. I love creatives that go, "Oh, I had the best idea." I'm like, "Did you make it?" And they're like, "No." I'm like, "You don't know." I've seen I've seen ideas that I thought were brilliant turn out horribly, and I've seen average ideas that I thought were boorish turn out brilliantly. Until it's made and it's out there and it's a living thing, you cannot, you can't say. Well, there's a there's a safety and security to being able to talk with longing about ideas that don't exist, right? <laughs> um, how would your most um, loyal employee describe you, and maybe how would your most disgruntled employee <laughs> describe you? Oh God, it might be the same person. <laughs> I mean, I hope that my most loyal 
like I wrote this guy the other day, I was going to see one of his clients, you know, and so we were getting briefed on what they've been doing. And I wrote him and I said, you know, well, you know, I'll be candid. And he goes, oh, I know you will. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, all right, that's either a blessing or a curse. And he goes, no, it's a good thing. But I I, I do think people feel like I'm pretty candid, you know, that I I really don't want people to spend a lot of energy wondering where they sit with me Um, when when I'm not, when I'm frustrated, you'll know I'm frustrated, you know, when I'm thrilled, you'll know I'm thrilled. And I, I don't know if even if those things really, really matter, but I think, I think candor, um, I hope, I, I hope that they would say that, you know, I, I try to be a person of character, um, that ethics are important to me. Um, I think that's, I think, I would hope that they'd know that I work for them versus, you know, versus them working for me. You know, I, I think that's an, it's ironic that you get to this level and the only way you succeed is if you're working for the people that work for you. Because if I'm not doing anything for them, I just, you know, I don't think I have a job. Maybe disgruntled. I don't know if just, now I'm applying what I wish I would do better. Um, I don't know. The most disgruntled. What do you, what do you wish you would do better? (laughs) I wish that um I wish I was a little bit more crazy, like a little less responsible to the brand, the business, the client, the creatives. You know, I, I feel like I am a very responsible like I showed up on time, you know. Yeah. I said it. I was like I, I wish I would show up 2 hours late and drunk. <laughs> right. Do you think part of that you talked about numbers and the business side of things and finding that fascinating, but with that comes, you know, taking the red pill of understanding the implications of losing a piece of business or of, you know, irresponsibility in its, in its many forms to affect people's lives and yeah. their college funds? Like, it, is yeah. that what it is? Yeah, probably. And it's probably why I chose this because I, I really wanted to go into theater. And I'm sure in my naive state, I just thought it doesn't have enough business structure around it. And so when I chose advertising, you know, my feeling was we're not in the business of creativity. We're in the business of advertising and we use creativity to, to do right by that business. And there's a very big difference. Like as all these people are saying, we're gonna go make all this content for these platforms. And I'm like, are we, are we falling for something really stupid? Which is <laughs> that we're creating content for these platforms for free, actually paying, you know, and, and then the, the content we're creating serves the platform more than it serves the business or the brand. Do I care if I created some content that people liked if they don't remember the brand or they didn't get the business proposition? That's fool's gold to me. I think you said a creativity is a tool and a strategic mind is a tool and mm-hmm. a sense of business savvy is a tool. And on that spectrum, I've, I've always felt like you could be, you know, 85% business savvy and 15% create, you know, creative, creatively strong. And you could make that work and have a great career and, or you could have that flipped. But if you're a hundred percent on one side, like you should go to France mm-hmm. and paint. And if mm-hmm. you're 100% on the other side, you Probably. don't have the most you important tool in the, in the bag. Exactly. I think that's a very it's a very wise statement, and I think there are balances of it. And quite frankly, I think that there are a lot of business, creative, the strong, a lot of the strongest creative leaders in big companies, I think probably are business-minded. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think about Rob Riley, and, you know, he came from the account side, went to the creative, but he's, you know, he's very good at both. I mean, he's probably, you know, that I mean, they're, but most of the most of my contemporaries or our contemporaries, I find do have respect for both. Yeah. And the ones that are a little wild and just lean into the you know rock and roll side of behavior, they don't do well. Yeah. It doesn't end well. Yeah, that went out of style at least a decade <laughs> ago, probably too. Maybe it never was in style. I don't think it was. When yeah. I look at the when I look at the the people that were really making a difference in the industry. It wasn't. They were. They were. They were crazy, but they understood it was a business. Okay, so I end every one of these conversations with the same question, mm. um, and the question is, what was the idea that got away? And it could be from any p- point in your career. What was that one idea that you love that you just can't seem to forget and that you just couldn't sell for whatever reason? But one of these days. Well, it's interesting because, um, again, I I think on big platform ideas, but there were two business pitches at Leo that we didn't win. And I thought they were brilliant. 
and one was for Southwest Airlines, and we took them in the concept of the fair line. You're not an airline, you're a fair line. And everything you do, like you should give rewards, like like if, if people sit in the middle seat on your plane, they should get free drinks. Or you should have a lottery on the plane uh, that one person in the middle seat's gonna get a, a free ticket or, but make the middle seat fair, you know, and pick everything in the industry that's unfair and fair it out. And, you know, now they're doing transparency and I'm like, but I just thought that was such a huge idea. Um, and then the other one was for TripAdvisor and we had this line TripAdvisor travel wiser. And it was to activate all those little owls that you see stuck on every restaurant, every hotel, and make the owl mean something. Um, They weren't doing anything with the owl. And so we were like, don't call your reviews um, reviews. Call them something like hoots or something, you know, so that there's – because everybody's going to have reviews. But if all of a sudden you can distinguish that your review is a hoot and hoots are um, different than reviews because they're with all these wise travelers that are always feeding you, you know, the information – and now they're using the owl, not as not to the detail, and they don't have the travel wiser, which I think is just such a beautiful. I mean, I love taglines; I, I think they're amazing. And so, you know, when when we wrote TripAdvisor Travel Wiser, I'm like, nobody's going to forget that. It's so it's 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 melodic. So those two, I'm like, ah, oh, I could have seen that work going for. A decade to forever. Susan, this was so fun. It was so great to get to know you. Yeah, and, uh, it's and nice thank to you for being you. so forthcoming. I kidding, yeah. Awesome I'm, conversation. I have to be consistent because I talk too much. And if, if I'm not consistent all the time, it, I will look like I'm psychotic. <laughs> so. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, yeah. All right, that was Susan Cradle. Man, she's the best. Okay, thank you to my friends at The One Club. Thank you to my friends at JSM Music. If you like the pod, rate it, share it. Thanks for getting to the end. Okay, we'll talk soon. Peace.